0: So our passage this morning is John chapter 3 from verses 22 to 36. And uh, <clears throat> last week you, you had a, a wonderful passage taking in Nicodemus and John 3 and 16 and so on. I was a bit jealous. I wish that it had been me last week. <laughs> but, uh, so, but, but the thing is, John's gospel has got so many parts to it that are just, just wonderful and uh, so that we're going to look at uh, <clears throat> this uh, section this morning, twenty-two to thirty-six. But before we do that, uh, just remember John chapter twenty, verses thirty to thirty-one, and and this is a, a verse that we should read again and again as we're reading through the gospel. And it's through really the outlines, John the Evangelist outlines the purpose of his gospel. And he says this, these are written, these words are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose. That's why this gospel, and the other gospels too, were written. So John opens his Gospel with a a magnificent theological statement about who Jesus is, the eternal Word of God. (coughs) It's absolutely magnificent. He's the eternal Word of God, deity incarnate. And then comes John the Baptist, (coughs) who points us to Jesus, all in chapter 1. And then we see Jesus come. He's calling some of his first disciples, Andrew and Peter, and then Philip and Nathaniel. And then in chapter two, John gives us a taste of the divine power at work, where Jesus performs an an outstanding miracle of mercy at a wedding in Cana in Galilee, changing water into wine and thus saving the bridal family from acute shame and humiliation. And then Jesus, <clears throat> then, he goes and he chases out the corrupt and the commercialized money makers from the courtyard of the, the temple which had, had been dedicated to the worship of God. And it had become basically a, a an affront. And the institutionalized religion of the day was hand in hand with the blatant, Exploitation of people who came to worship God at that temple. And that caused a bit of a stir as Jesus cleared out all that stuff. And it was probably this incident and the miracles that Jesus was performing which led to one of Israel's leading theologians to seek out Jesus for a private discussion, Nicodemus. And you studied him last week. And after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, John, the writer of the Gospel, he now records another incident in the life of the Lord Jesus, which again points to who Jesus is, points to his divine identity. And uh, this morning, you know, sometimes I I like to have nice headings, nice tidy headings and things, but I'm beginning to feel at times that if, if... if headings don't just sort of happen, then I'm, I'm not going to kind of force that. So what I'm going to do this morning, and for those of you who are taking notes, and and I see that lovely little kind of jotter that, uh, you know, where, where you can take notes. And if you take notes, uh, I don't have headings, but I'll be working down verse by verse. And I'll probably say, right, we're moving to this verse or that verse, if you're taking notes. So let's read together then this passage. John chapter 3 from verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John also was baptising at Anan near Salem because there was plenty of water there and people were coming and they were being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. I think they were kind of talking about the technicalities of, of baptism and things. They came to John, John's disciples, and said to him, Rabbi. That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptising and everybody's going to him. Yeah. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. And then John the Baptist's words finish here and we go back into John the Evangelist who reflects on these words. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. But no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. <clears throat> I'm sure God will bless the public reading of his inspired scripture. Now, just uh, before we start, well, there are two Johns, there, there is John the Evangelist <clears throat> who wrote this gospel. And there's John the Baptist. So we're talking about two people called John. And uh, I'll refer to John the Baptist. And then when I'm talking about the John of the Gospel, I'll call him John the Evangelist. (coughs) And and so what we have here in verses 22 to 24, there's uh, the setting of the scene. And after Jesus' conversion with Nicodemus, John tells us, that Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem, went down into the Judean countryside, and Jesus and his disciples were baptizing people who came to him. Now, in the beginning of chapter 4, you'll see next week that uh, John, the evangelist, says, by the way, actually, Jesus didn't baptize, it was his disciples that baptized. And uh, we know already that John the Baptist was preaching repentance And baptism. He was like one of these Old Testament prophets. He was dressed like one. He lived like one. He preached judgment like one. He was really, in many ways, John the Baptist was the last in a long line of God's messengers. And in many ways, the bridge between the old and the new. And uh, people, of course, were still coming to John to be baptized. And and not far away in the same vicinity at <coughs> Anan near Salem. Anan just means uh, springs, or it could mean many waters. It was obviously an area where there was lots of water there where people could be baptised. And, and both John the Baptist and Jesus were attracting followers and baptising them. And so in verse 24, uh, John the Evangelist, he, he inserts a little note just to let his readers know that this was a very early phase in Jesus' ministry, not recorded in the other Gospels. This all happened before John the Baptist was flung into prison by Herod. And then, in verses 25 and 26, we've got some competition happening. Just picture the scene. John the Baptist... He's baptizing as people come to him. But in the very same area, there's a similar scene. Jesus and his disciples, they're baptizing as well. And so this Jew, the certain Jew, no doubt observing both groups, got into an argument with John the Baptist's disciples. Now, we don't know the substance of the argument. We're not told about that but it must have been something to do with Jesus and with John the Baptist and there baptizing people. Maybe there were slight differences in this person saying, why do you people do it that way? and Why do you people do it that way? Or it might even have been that this Jew was beginning to see there were more and more people sort of going to Jesus and his disciples than to John. Uh, anyway... <clears throat> There we go, and this is what was happening, and this brought something to the surface among John the Baptist's disciples, Uh, and it's something that existed then, and it's something that still exists today, and it's called that green-eyed monster, Jealousy. Maybe the Jew in question, you know, maybe he had just pointed out, oh, see, there are a lot more people going to him over there. And John's disciples uh, said to John, look, not only is he baptizing, but more and more people are going to him. That's to Jesus and his disciples. And of course, they were concerned for the teacher, John the Baptist, They were loyal, loyal to him, and they were jealous of what was happening near them. Now, I'm going to share something with you, and I know that you probably won't believe it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Even today, in Christian circles, pastors, church leaders, mission workers, and Christians of all types can be smitten with jealousy. That's hard to believe, is it? (laughs) Well, maybe not. Because we all know within ourselves we've got that bit of jealousy at times. And I have been at conferences at times where I have felt the jealousy between between people. How come my church isn't growing like his church? He obviously can't be teaching the truth. (laughs) I've heard people say that. How come her gifts are being used and my gifts aren't being used? How come his ministry is thriving and my ministry isn't? And of course, when the years we lived in Turkey in that pressure cooker atmosphere of ministry, there it was very tempting to covet other people's success in ministry. And uh, I was just thinking as I was preparing this, what about me? (laughs) Now, I'm not really the jealous type. Now, Heidi, my wife is here, so you can ask her whether that's true or not. But I do have other weaknesses. But, you know, I'd sometimes, I have to confess, in these early days in Turkey, particularly when I was struggling to learn the Turkish language, it didn't come easy to me, I'd sometimes be a bit jealous of colleagues in Turkey whose language skills were far better than mine. And therefore their potential for ministry was far wider than mine. And particularly people who had come after me to Turkey, who were now overtaking me in the grasp and the learning of the Turkish language. That's not easy. And at times I had to confess that I felt jealousy. And uh, John the Baptist's disciples were jealous. And even though they'd heard John testify to who Jesus is, and in verse 26 we read it, you know, they even said, that man that you testified about, you know, the one that uh, you said, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and, and all that, that man you testified about. But obviously hadn't registered. And there's an unhealthy competitiveness where there should have been no competition We can compare the Lord Jesus' disciples here too when he often told them that he had come to die on a cross for for our sins and they didn't get it. And they were shocked when it happened. And, you know, we can all be guilty of selective hearing, listening to the words but hearing only what we want to hear. And when we come to Scripture and we put ourselves under Scripture, That's a danger sometimes. We hear what we want to hear, but we're not hearing what the scripture is saying. Moving on to verses 27 to 30. What, What was John the Baptist's reaction to this? If he had been proud and jealous or fearful of his own ministry diminishing, sparks would have flown. Division would have happened. But instead, he gives us an incredible insight into himself and to how he actually viewed himself. Almost a, a self-portrait, if you like. And he said four things about himself. And these four things are quite amazing. Verse 27, the first thing. He, he basically said, I, I'm only doing what I was gifted to do. And people often chase after spiritual gifts that haven't been given to them. But not John the Baptist. He knew what he had been given by God to do, and he went on and he did it. <clears throat> we need to be careful that we don't chase after gifts that God hasn't given us. And verse, the second thing, verse 28, he says, well, you know, he says to his disciples, I am only the forerunner. Now, John the Baptist stated categorically who he was and who he was not. And he stated that more than once. He was sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for him. He told his followers about this already in verse 26. Uh, We know that. And also, of course, you know, just turning to, well, just going back to the first chapter of John, uh, uh, John the evangelist tells us there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. But in verse 15 of chapter 1, says this, John testified concerning Jesus. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me, speaking about the eternity of Jesus. And John, in John chapter one, it continues, verse 19. Now the big guns, you know, the religious people from Jerusalem were were asking John, "Who, who are you? And verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. And then they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. And then finally he said, who are you? They were asking, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one Calling in the wilderness makes straight the way for the Lord and, and so on we can see throughout that the first half of chapter one how John the Baptist just points to Jesus again and again points to jesus <coughs> and uh, and then moving on to uh, verse twenty nine and we see the third thing that uh, John says he says, you know he says actually i 'm only the best man, and he uses a, a an example from everyday culture, actually then and now, that people would understand. He says, you know, I'm just the best man. I'm just, you know, Jesus is the bridegroom. And of course, marriage is often used as a picture to describe God and his people, the relationship between God and his people. Isaiah 62 and 4 and 5 talks about Uh, God talking about, uh, uh, as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And uh, John the Baptist was happy to be the lesser. He was happy to be the best man, helping to announce the coming of the bridegroom. Well, I've had the privilege of being best man to a number of my friends and to my brother over the years. And uh, I remember one particular time uh, the uh, bridegroom and I had decided that what we'd do uh, is we'd each buy a new suit for his wedding, and so and we bought identical suits, <laughs> and uh, they were very nice. And uh, I, I was all scrubbed up, you know, and really looking, you know, looking much better than I normally look. <laughs> And uh, and I thought, well, this is nice. And, and uh, so the, the photographer came along, you know, and then, the, you know, all the photographs and so on, and then this one and that one and this group and that group. And, of course, I was in the mall. And then, you know, the bridesmaids and then the best man and, and so on. And then we'll take one with the, with the groom and the best man. And then the photographer stopped and says, right, son, hop it. I'm finished with you. I just want <laughs> the bridegroom and the bride. And, you know, and of course, uh, that was it. That, that, that was me finished. That was my job over. And, uh, and, of course, the thing is, you know, the wedding is not about the best man. The wedding is about the bridegroom and the bride. And what John was saying was, I'm just the best man. And, of course, the New Testament imagery of the bride and the groom continues with, you know, the image of Christ and his church in Ephesians 5 and, and Revelation 21, But uh, finally, John the Baptist makes an astonishing statement. This is the fourth thing. And he says this, He must become greater, and I must become less. He must become greater, and I must become less. That's in verse 30. He must increase, and I must decrease. Now, this short, pithy statement sums up John's character. Ironically, that's what made John so great. John was utterly happy for Jesus. Happy to be the signpost. Happy to point to Jesus. Happy to lose disciples to Jesus. Actually, that had already started, because uh, in the second half of chapter 1, we read that Andrew... Had actually been a follower of John and was now within Jesus' inner circle. It actually tells us that. Well, we've not got time to look, but John chapter 1, verses 35 to 40, we see that Andrew was actually originally a disciple of John the Baptist. And then actually he became a disciple of Jesus. And and John's joy was now complete. It was utterly fulfilled at his own fading out and Jesus taking center stage. Now, this is not natural. This is not naturally sort of what what we would want as human beings. And this is the mark of immense, deep spiritual maturity. And tragically, many servants of Christ who have headed up very effective ministries have made shipwreck of their faith and of the faith of others because they somehow thought that they were above accountability, that they were too big to fall. <clears throat> I'm just thinking of a year just last year there, the shocking demise of the Ravi Zacharias uh, Ministries International and the fallout uh, <clears throat> reverberated worldwide Even to three precious colleagues in Istanbul who were manning the office there and who had lined up some conferences uh, and and so on. And and they were shocked at uh, what had happened. The post mortem revealed that Ravi always had to increase. The very opposite of John the Baptist we must make sure that in pursuing whatever gifts God has given us, that ultimately we must decrease and Christ must increase. Then moving on to verses 31 to 35. So, okay, who is this Jesus that John has been pointing to and John has been a, a signpost for? Well, why was Jesus so superior to John. And the Gospel writer explains again who Jesus is. And and this little section here, actually, it reads like a chapter straight out of the book of Hebrews. And the whole book of Hebrews is is sort of saying that Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses, and so on. And and that, that, that resembles us here. And in verse 31, we read that Jesus is greater because he came from above, from heaven. From the very heart of God. Came from heaven. This speaks of his eternal nature. And of course John tells us in the evangelist in chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. Tells of his deity. And his incarnation. John was from, John the Baptist was from the earth. An ordinary, albeit remarkable man, although John was also sent from God, he didn't come from heaven. He was limited. He could call people to repentance and baptize them, but he could never save them from their sin. Only Jesus could do that. And then verse 32. Jesus is greater because he has access to heaven's thoughts. What he has seen and heard from the very heart of God, he can share. John, being earthly, had no such access to the heart of deity. And many <clears throat> would not accept Christ's testimony, of course, especially the theologically trained in the Jewish religious institutions of the day. But some would believe his testimony and then and now would become part of God's family, God's kingdom. And it should be accepted. His testimony should be accepted because God is truthful. And, and this is the thing we, we must be utterly confident in God's holy, unchanging, truthful character. He is intrinsically true, and so is His Son. True. <clears throat> in verse 34. Jesus is greater because he speaks the very words of God, and God has given him the Spirit without limit. You see, John was earthly, John the Baptist, and could only use the language of earth, really. He was not able to speak of heavenly things with the same first-hand knowledge that Jesus had. And Jesus speaks God's own words. And God's spirit has been given to him without limit. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God's leaders, the judges and the prophets, uh, they they were kind of empowered by God's spirit here and there with only the measure of the spirit required to do the task at hand, but not so with Jesus. The incarnate Son of God received the spirit without limit, without measure. So when Jesus speaks... He speaks the very words of God, which are utterly true and trustworthy. There is an enormous amount of effort these days going into, I suppose there always has been, it's maybe just a bit more sophisticated, people casting doubt on the word of God. People casting doubt on the words of Jesus. We need to be sure that we understand that these words are trustworthy and they are true. And then in verse 35, Jesus is greater because the Father loves him and has given him everything. Because he's the beloved son of the Father, everything the Father possesses has been given to him and here we're entering into deep theological territory which in many ways is beyond our finite minds to comprehend the love that exists within the trinity of father and son and spirit and this love existed from eternity And so Jesus could say in John 17 and 24, he could say, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And so John the Evangelist has made it clear that John the Baptist was a great man, the last in a long line of God's prophets, preparing the way for and and pointing to the one who would come after him. The Messiah, the Saviour, the Son of God, Deity, Incarnate, Jesus. And then finally, in verse 36. uh, After all that's been said, there needs to be some kind of response. And John the Evangelist is asking his readers to respond to all of this. And he lays it out in stark but simple terms. Now, we're told today that there are so many issues that are so complex and so complicated. We had an example of that last week uh, in the Women's Hour programme last week, uh, which coincided with World Women's Day, International Women's Day. Now, I don't listen to Women's Hour, uh, but I read an article in the newspaper the day after that uh, described what was going on, where a couple of politicians were asked to define what a woman is. They were asked, define what is a woman? They couldn't, or they wouldn't, too complicated. Well, this final verse here is anything but complicated. This verse here consists of two statements. The first one is this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Jesus came from heaven, from the loving heart of God to the world, to offer salvation to anyone who will believe in him. And believing in him brings eternal life. It brings forgiveness of sin and a rebirth into a new life by the Spirit An entry into God's kingdom. Or, the second thing, and there's no third option. All who do not come to God's Son in humble repentance and believing faith, but reject him and reject the salvation he offers, consign themselves to the most terrible of judgments. They will not see... The eternal life that christ gives rather they will see god's wrath now the concept of god's wrath is very very unpopular today but the bible and jesus takes the reality of god's wrath very seriously and we often make the mistake of comparing god's wrath with our own often misplaced and sometimes wrongly motivated anger and I have to say that uh, throughout life, as I look back <clears throat> times when I've been angry, that, uh, you know, has often been less than righteous anger. But God's anger is not like ours. It's his pure, holy, loving, and utterly sinless reaction to impure, holy, unholy, sinful, unjust, oppressive, brutal behavior and we are rightly, you know, we, 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 we do get angry, and we are rightly angry at injustice. I just think of the terrible violence perpetuated through the world against women worldwide. I just think of the murder of unborn innocents worldwide. Do, do we not get angry? And the merciless and unjustified persecution of Christians in many parts of the world. Now, if we are angry at these things, then God in his infinite love and goodness and purity is even more so. But uh, <clears throat> I remember, yeah, I think I shared a quote with you before when we were talking about God's wrath in another context about uh, <clears throat> a Croatian theologian, and he lived through the horrors of the Balkan Wars in the early 1990s. And he was quite a liberal theologian, and, and, he, and he said, you know, I used to think that wrath the whole concept of God being angry, it was unworthy of God. Isn't isn't God love? And then my resistance to the idea of God's wrath evaporated in the former Yugoslavia. How does God react to such carnage, such terrible, terrible carnage? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't angry at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. God is wrathful because God is love. Therefore, John the Evangelist is asking his readers for a response to Jesus. While we have the opportunity, we are to believe in Jesus, to, to live for him, to follow him, to enjoy divine forgiveness and the eternal life to come. But if we choose not to, if we choose to reject Christ, the wrath of God, this verse says, will remain on us. That is, it will hang over us And we will one day suffer the full consequences of sin and fall under God's judgment. So where are we today? It's a really serious subject. If we haven't come to Jesus in repentance and faith, then today I plead with you on the authority of the truth of these scriptures that you do that today father we think about what we've read today and we just think about john the baptist how he pointed people to jesus and no wonder he pointed people to jesus the lamb of god the savior of the world the one who would go to a cross to be a sacrificial death for our sins And so, Father, we ask that you would challenge each of us. Those of us who have come to faith many years ago and maybe lost the freshness of it, and maybe those of us here today who maybe haven't taken that step yet, we pray, Lord, you would help us, help us to have faith and to believe in Jesus. In his name, amen.